Hello everyone. Good to see you all over here today. Hopefully you guys will be blessed by the message today. I'll be able to share with each one of you all. I know for me it was a definite major uh, growing experience to be able to learn more about uh, the catechism question that we're going to be going into today. So here we go. For a lot of us, there are those relationships that we have and cherish dearly. For some, it could be our parents, friends, coworkers, or even church members, and even for some of us, our pets as well. What makes these relationships so precious to us are due to things such as we enjoy having their company around. The other person knows the deep and secret things about us that very few people do, or even that we have a lot of similar interests. It is these sort of relationships that bring us to have such a great appreciation for those who are dear to us, so much so that if we were to lose any of those that are near and dear to our hearts, it would be devastating to us due to losing that precious relationship that is like a diamond in the rough. All of these relationships that we have or even will experience with others on, on earth points forward to the true relationship we will be discussing today, which is a relationship that is established through baptism. I'm sure a lot of us have heard of the word baptism, especially if we have been going to a church for a decent period of time, right? But never really came to meditate on what the meaning of the word is. Some of us may have a good guess or get decently close to what baptism is. But according to the London's Baptist Catechism, it says, what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving himself up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. With that being said, we're going to talk about the different facets of what makes up baptism and how it affects how we live our lives. The first thing for us to meditate on is that baptism is an ordinance that was instituted by Jesus Christ. What this means is that Jesus Christ was the one who established the authoritative role of baptism to all those who profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with that being said, some may be thinking, well, how can Jesus be the one that established baptism when it was actually John the Baptist who started baptizing before Jesus Christ did? Well, this is a good question. But we must remember what the forerunner, John the Baptist, said of Jesus, which is found in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, saying, Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. End quote. As we could see here, John himself said that the baptism that he does is only pointing to the greater person and even the fuller baptism that is given by Jesus Christ. Even though baptism was something that was established with Jesus, it does not mean that baptism was something that was brought out of thin air, out of nowhere. But actually, it was even as far back as even in the Old Testament, we could see types and shadows of baptism. Some of these examples we could see 
would be the example of Noah's flood. How the Apostle Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, saying, Who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, end quote. As we could see under divine inspiration that the apostle Peter used the events of Noah's flood to show how baptism works when its true fulfillment has arrived, which is brought by Jesus Christ. Now, as a side note, Peter is by no way saying here that baptism in and of itself or even with our own efforts saves us. Rather, Peter is teaching how just as the ark saved Noah's family from the judgment of God through the flood, so does Jesus Christ. Save all those by, by the coming judgment of God who will cast his anger on the ungodly, not with water, but with the everlasting fire. One more example I would give is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, where the Apostle Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. End quote. As you see here, the Apostle Paul would use the example of the Red Sea that Moses brought the children of Israel through as a way to show how the children of Israel were baptized into Moses. This reference to baptism is more so showing how the Israelites identified their lives by following the leadership and guidance of Moses for their future days until they have reached the promised land. Along with that, we also have another example in Exodus chapter 2, which for some of us, if you've watched the Prince of Egypt, it is Moses being put in the wicker basket and left to the Nile River till Moses was able to meet the daughter of Pharaoh. Where in that aspect, you have a child left unattended in a wicker basket. Could have been a major storm going on. Could have been water thrashing, throwing. Moses could have drowned in the water. Yet it was that ark that Moses was put in that kept him safe until the appointed time when Pharaoh's daughter would take him in to be raised up under the Egyptian rule till God would use them to be able to bring about the exodus of his people. Or how about the book of Jonah? Or with Jonah, for those of us who are familiar, was given a mission and a job from God himself, which was go to preach the gospel, essentially, to those who were of a rebellious nation. But Jonah, instead of doing what God commanded him, decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and just go somewhere else because uh, I'm not about that life. So... In that aspect, he were to go on a boat with other people, and yet God, in his displeasure, were to send a storm, which got everybody on the boat, along with Jonah, to be able to be terrified for their lives. And it wasn't until they all found out that it was Jonah who was the reason that the storm was being thrown on them, they had to throw Jonah overboard. To at that moment, the storm subsided. But of course, Jonah is now left in the water, which eventually, even if he's a great swimmer, eventually he will drown and die. But God sent a great fish to be able to save Noah, not Noah, Jonah, to be able to save him for three days and three nights. 
So, Jonah was thrown off the boat into the sea, and yet God set that great fish to swallow up Jonah, to where Jonah says in his prayer the following quote, For you had cast me into the deep, into the water of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All of your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I've been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death, that the great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As we can see here, Jonah was also saved from the sea that was wrathful and vengeful until Jonah was consumed by the sea, to which God saved Jonah through the fish. And it was God who also brought Jonah to safety. There are many more types of shadows of baptism all throughout the Old Testament, but we must move on to better things, to the next things. The first aspect of baptism is that it is a sign of a believer's fellowship with Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection, being united with him. The text we're going to be using to expound on this concept is going to be found in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, which says, Or do you not know that many of us, as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Before we even start to start talking about these matters and marvelous treasures found in these verses, it is important we get the context of this passage. The Apostle Paul here is giving the gospel message to the church in Rome. At this point in time, he's discussing that how in the gospel message, no matter how much a person may sin, that God's grace is much more than any amount of sin a person may have done. Thus, there is no one that is too far gone for God to be unable to save. For since he is able to save Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners, there is indeed hope for any of us if the Apostle Paul were to say stuff like that. Although Paul anticipates at this point in time from his audience that since grace abounds more than sin, let us go on sinning all we want and make the grace of God excel within us. It is this very thought that Paul brings up the topic of baptism to be able to show the foolishness of that idea. As we have read earlier, Paul shows that baptism actually shows all those who receive it, that just like Jesus Christ, who was dead, buried, and resurrected, we too, in the same manner, also were buried, dead, and resurrected unto a new life. Believers die through baptism, but not in the physical death like Jesus, but rather it's a death to sin. Just as Jesus was buried, so are we bearing, being buried through the water we are submersed into. And thus we rise from the water, just as Jesus, who rose from the dead. With the picture of each part of the baptism process, it should be more clear to see that in every aspect of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, 
so are we walking in perfect step with him as well. With the one that, oh, my bad. More clear to see that in every aspect of Jesus' life, death, the resurrection, so are we walking in perfect step with the one we are united with through baptism. Of course, just to make sure, we are on the same page. Even though I'm talking about water baptism, it is not water baptism that causes us to die to our sins. It is also the aspect that we're all supposed to live towards righteousness with God. So it's those two aspects that water baptism doesn't cause us to be dead to our sins and also gives us the desires and ability to be able to seek after God living like Jesus Christ. Rather, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we get baptized in water, we are showing ourselves along with our congregation the outward expression of what God has already started in the life of that very believer. What I'm saying is that when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and caused to be dead to our sins, given the desires to live our lives in the way that is pleasing to God with thankfulness towards what Jesus has done for us. This all happened before we even got water baptized. When we get water baptized, we are expressed to the congregation that God has already been doing in your life this entire time. Not that he just started working a good work in your life at the point of baptism. If it is easier to understand, I will give an example. What I'm saying is like this. How my wife, who at one point in time in the past was pregnant with Phoenix initially. No one knew about it except for a very few people. And until the appointed time when we told all people that Savannah was indeed pregnant, we see here that just as how Savannah was already pregnant before the news was spread out to the whole church, it is when a person is baptized in water that they have already died to their sins and already seeking to live a life pleasing to God. That's why... We, in the first place, we are wanting to get water baptized, really, because we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit that has already given us those desires to be water baptized, no doubt. So a good aspect in relation to how in Romans 6, Paul says, where you want to say, oh, let's go on sinning so grace may abound. And he says, don't you realize that we have died to sin through baptism? Good aspect to understand that aspect of how he uses the fact that we're dead to sin a common phrase that, I mean, I don't know if we use it anymore, but we used to say in a person when they're in a relationship, an intimate one, and they end up breaking up or separating, that we had the woman who's been going through an abusive time in that relationship and finally decides enough is enough and cuts off the relationship. She then says to the person that she was in a relationship with, John, you are dead to me. Now, does that mean that John is literally dead and where his heart stopped beating? Not quite. Some may think, I'm sure she probably would be wanting that, but that is not what she actually meant. What she meant is the fact that for a time back then, she sent a lot of appreciation, dedication, a lot of commitment, a lot of time that she sacrificed serving this one whom she was desiring to marry someday. But because of how he's been treating her very wrongly, she decides that at this point, she no longer has any more affections for John. She no longer wants to desire a relationship to further anything more with him. For that fact, whenever she sees them, she doesn't get butterflies in her stomach, but really a very nervous feeling, a very uneasy feeling 
to the fact that if it's bad enough, she doesn't even want to see him anymore. And at this point, instead of pursuing a marriage with him, she's now pursuing a marriage with someone else who will be able to be a godly husband someday for her. In that same way, that's how we too should be through baptism, dead to our sin. That we no longer have affections for the sins that we used to love, used to serve, and used to be proud of doing. That now brings us shame. And now we actually seek to take pride in living like Jesus Christ. Also, they said to him, we'll use another passage. This is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup I drink, you will drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized with. So you have two individuals. You have the mother of two of her children that are wanting to have to be seated at the right hand and the left hand of Christ. But Jesus responds and says and asks directly, really, the, the children that are really wanting to be in these positions of preferability to be able to ask them, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? In this aspect, this use of baptism, he's referencing the fact that as Jesus went living a righteous life for the Lord, he died on the cross. He was hated by most. He was not praised and glorified by all that he should be. So too, for all those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit and eventually baptized through water, they too will also be persecuted the same way as Jesus was persecuted with. They too will drink the cup of suffering that Jesus also drank as well. Although granted, the cup that he did drink was the cup of God's wrath for all of our sins. Nevertheless, as Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, if the world called me Beelzebub, they will much more call you worse things. For so the student shall be like the master in every aspect. So let us remember that being baptized is not just some, oh, fun thing, simple thing, but it actually is actually saying that you are going to be signing up your life to live the life of Jesus, which is not all glamour and amazingness and blessings. If it is, praise God for it. But if it isn't, there's a reason why Jesus on multiple occasions would say, count the cost. Because indeed, being baptized with Jesus' baptism is not something that everyone is able to endure, neither wanting to receive in the first place, right? And here's another passage we have in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the workings of God, who raised him from the dead. When he, that is Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them and having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regards to food or drink in respect to festivals, new moons or Sabbath. In this aspect of baptism that we have through Christ and what we share and what he has, Jesus is the ruler of all. And as Jesus is, so are we too as well. Even as it says in the letter that Paul writes, that we too, as believers, will even judge the angels. 
Remember, Jesus is the one who will judge the living and the dead. But as you see, Jesus is the one who has ruler over all principalities and authorities over the unseen realm. And even eventually in the seen realm, too, so will we. Which means what? In our baptism, we have what is called Christian liberty. That in Christ, we have freedom to be able to live as we see fit and as we please in the same likeness and manner of Jesus Christ. Yet, there will be people who will try to enslave and take away our freedom in Christ. Yet, they are not the ones who are Lord or a king. It is Christ. And if our Christ, who has given us the authority and the free conscience to do it, so we can do it to the glory of God with our Christian liberty. On that note, we now talk about the next important aspect of baptism. Is that through it, we're able to receive the forgiveness of sins. The thing to note here is that yes, baptism does bring about the forgiveness of sins as referenced in the catechism question to the passages such as Mark chapter 1 verse 4, Acts chapter 2 verse 38, and Acts chapter 2 verse 16. Although the question is, to which baptism actually brings the forgiveness of sins? Is it water baptism or is it the baptism of the Holy Spirit? To which I bring about a personal testimony of my time back then. There was a time back then that I used to go to college, CSU East Bay, to get my bachelor's degree eventually in criminal justice. While I was over there, I was... Loving the Lord, it's brand new Christian, I guess relatively, just on fire to be just able to do all sorts of Bible studies, fellowships, try to get involved in any sort of church activities, and be able to talk to other people about the good news of Jesus Christ. I met an individual, we'll call him Matthew, and he came up to me and he says, hey man, do you love Jesus? I said, yes I do. He says, well, would you like to do a Bible study? I said, of course, let's make it happen. He said, all right, great, meet me at the cafeteria at this time and place. I met up with this individual and him, another individual, we'll call him Sam, was there. And we all did a Bible study, the three of them, just me and them two. And they said, all right, Brendan. So let me ask you the question. How are you saved? I said, by faith in Jesus Christ and his works. And I said, cool. What else? I said, oh, uh, uh, I guess following what the Bible tells you to do. Uh, okay. Anything else? Uh, and, and pray, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but faith in Jesus, essentially. But we live out to live a life pleasing to the Lord. He said, oh, okay. Well, let me help you out over here. How about we go to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. So the verse reads, Now when they heard this, this is when Peter was preaching to the Jews, right? In Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit fell upon them and getting them all to speak with tongues in other known languages. Peter then says, they heard, now when the Jews heard this, the preaching of Peter, they were pierced to the hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the Holy Ghost. And so I read it. He says, well, we have a clear passage here where the people, the Jews asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? And Peter clearly tells them that they need to repent and be baptized. I'm like, uh, okay, I mean, yeah, it says that, uh, sure. Said, have you been baptized, my friend? I said, uh, uh, yeah, sure, like two years ago. Said, great. Have you ever gone out and actually 
baptize others as Jesus says in Matthew 28. I said, uh, I mean, I preached the gospel to them, but no, I haven't baptized anybody physically in water. I said, well, hate to break it to you, but it sounds like you were actually never saved to begin with because all people who are baptized in water will go out and baptize other people as Jesus commands in Matthew 28. And after this, I said, well, this is a, a lot of stuff going on. How about I just uh, talk to you about this later? Let me just go ahead and just think about this overnight. And of course, he quotes the passage and he says, well, I'm just telling you, when Jesus met Matthew, the tax collector, right? And he told Matthew, get up and walk. What did Matthew say? Oh, hold on, Lord. Let me go think about it for a second. No, Matthew said, yes, sir, I will do that right away. But the fact that you're over here thinking about it, rather than following what the scripture plainly teaches, should be very concerning for you, my friend. I don't think you really saved much. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but like I said, well, I'll talk about this later. After that, I went to talk about a lot of my other friends, a lot of other brothers, sisters in Christ to see if baptism isn't indeed necessary in order to be saved. And they said no. And I was like, okay, good, because I was very nervous. Nevertheless, going out through the rest of my two or three years being at that college, I would deal with this group quite often. And there was one person, we'll call him Jorge, that I met who was a brand new believer and actually met them and actually was trying to talk to me as well. Like, hey, do you want to do a Bible study? And I already knew kind of what they do because I see what them do all the time. And so after doing my studies with him, he would bring up these passages that he's been trained to bring up like literally reading a script to me on how to be able to get me to be able to follow in how their church practices and preaches, right? And so they would bring their hammer verses and I would talk to them through each one and show how indeed that's how they teach you, but that's not the context of the passage. And eventually it was a long struggle with this individual. Uh, I don't have fellowship with him anymore, but nevertheless, it was really really hard to see that through a lot of people who did end up leaving that cult through using baptism and even just how, like you see, it's works righteousness that they teach you. That if you're not living according to the certain standard and ways, they will condemn you and say, do you even really love the Lord at that moment? Um, the disciples of Christ. Yeah, the disciples of Christ. And I even saw them even at a DVC when I went to go visit there, that they're even at um, Diablo Valley College in uh, Concord or Pleasant Hill, right? And they're even in San Jose. So these people, they're a lot all over the place. And like I said, it's pretty rough. Even me and Nairobi went to their church to actually go ahead and, you know, see what they do and how their actual, you know, service is preached. And no surprise, the main focus of their entire sermon that they were preached was actually done by people a little bit older than me, 25, 26 years old. So forget about First Timothy where they talk about that the person who wants to be a pastor must be mature in the faith. A lot of these people were college-aged kids, nevertheless. And their main focus was in Matthew 28, where that's all he talked about, where Jesus says, go out to all nations, baptizing them and teach them to obey my commandments. And he says, this is what we must do, and this is our highest calling. Matter of fact, they're even only calling. And so, like I said, with this passage of baptism that I had to do in our catechism question, it's not just a simple matter. There's actually people who twist the gospel and will actually turn something as good as baptism into something that will lead many people astray. And even got even some people that don't even abandon the faith entirely once they left that church because of how abusive it was, nevertheless. So some of the hammer verses that they would use is, like I said, in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 38, where Peter, who is a Jew, speaks to them and says to them, they must repent and be baptized. 
In this passage, Peter is talking to Jews who are supposed to look forward to the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ. But up until that point, they didn't walk in the aspect and ways of Jesus. So Peter tells them that they must do what Moses had happened with the children of Israel, where they're supposed to take their leadership, not from their Pharisees and Sadducees, but actually in Jesus Christ and, and whatnot. And that's why you see throughout the Acts, the Gospel of Acts, you see later on, we're going to go into it later, but other times baptism is being used. The next passage they would use, as I've read earlier, is the passage in 1 Peter, where it says, And once you are disobedient, when the patience of God kept away in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which few, that is eight people, were brought safely through the water, corresponding to here, and they'll emphasize it, which baptism now saves. But I ask them, okay, so they say, they use that. But I ask them, do you keep reading though? If you keep reading, you'll actually see it goes on because they stopped there. There's nothing more to read. But I told my friend, I said, let's keep reading them. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. I asked them, what's that? It's in parentheses. What is that part talking about? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. What, what relevance is that? Well, when you're dirty, what do we all do? We all get really dirty. We clean ourselves by taking a shower, removing the dirt from our flesh. But Peter says it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. What is that? That is the aspect of faith. So the baptism that we say is not through the physical baptism we do, but it's through faith, which is mentioned earlier, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Next passage, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to absorb all that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. They will say, you know, Jesus did his earthly ministry, was risen from the dead. And, you know, his final words before he went to sit at the right hand of the father must have been pretty important. If that's where he does his mic drop, must be a really emphasis and important thing. And so they would say it's here. We have to make disciples. And how do we make disciples? By baptism, by baptizing them. I say, "Okay, but do we not talk about all the other stuff Jesus taught before he went and ascended to the father? That the aspect of being making disciples through baptism is not through a work that we do, but as he says in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. And another passage is even in the New Testament as well. Another one, which is another passage they love to use a lot, is Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 16. This is also Mark's version of the Great Commission. He says, Jesus says to the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. And they pause right there and just stop. They say, see, he who believes and is baptized must be saved, is saved. I said, but are we going to, again, keep reading? Because the next verse says, but he who doesn't believe shall be condemned. I ask, if baptism is necessary for salvation, why doesn't it say he who doesn't believe or isn't baptized is condemned? It just says he who lacks saving faith is condemned. Because like I said, if we read the context, the water baptism that you guys are preaching so much is not what actually saves. And so much so, they even teach that if a person, I even had a person I would even talk to and do these studies with multiple times, he would even tell me that because there's so much emphasis on water baptism, 
that if they come and preach the gospel to somebody and they set a time for that person to get baptized within a week and that person dies on that Wednesday before the Sunday they could get baptized, I asked them, where does that person go? If they did not receive the baptism they were supposed to get, that person went to the pastor of the church and asked him. And he says, well, that person is going to hell because they didn't get baptized by water. And that is how you receive the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of your sins. So hopefully you could be able to last until that week is over to get baptized by water. And like I said, it was definitely a very, very enlightening time. So as I read, with that story being said about my experiences with those who believe in what is called baptismal regeneration, where they believe that a person must be baptized in water in order to be forgiven of their sins and to receive the Holy Spirit. Essentially saying that even if a person does hear the gospel and believes in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and is scheduled to water baptism in a week, yet dies before that week was over, they are going to hell since they did not get baptized by water. This is not what the scriptures teach, for there are many passages that show that a person is saved by faith alone apart from the deeds of the law, such as Romans chapter 4, verse 5, which says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. End quote. This verse shows that a person who truly believes in the true gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved apart from any works they do or don't do in their future time on the earth. With that being said, then, it would show that water baptism is not necessary in order for a person to be saved eternally. I'm not saying, though, that a person does not need to be baptized by water since it is not needed for salvation. Rather, I would say for that person, if they have saving faith, they would want to keep the commandments of God not to be saved or to stay saved, but because they are saved and thus keep the commandments of God to show their love for the God who saved them from himself. Thus, since being baptized is commanded from God for all believers, all believers will have the desire at some point to be baptized. With that being said, even though there is talk, even though there is talk of the apostle saying that people should be getting baptized for the forgiveness of sins, they are talking with the understanding that the true baptism that saves is the baptism that Jesus gives, which is with the Holy Spirit. A good text to use is found in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And I will read it. It says, End quote, While Paulus was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus, on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience? He asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. End quote. As we could see here, oh, that's unfortunate. I missed, I moved my spots. One second. I am troubleshooting. Let's see.
Okay. All right, here we go. As we can see here, the Apostle Paul expressly showed that people received the Holy Spirit by believing. On top of that, the group of believers in Ephesus were baptized with John's baptism, yet did not receive the baptism of Jesus Christ, which is more so in reference, not needing to be baptized in water again, per se, for the baptism of Jesus, but rather believing in whom your baptism points to and having your life being dedicated to living as Jesus himself lived. In that aspect, this is similar in reference to the passage I quoted earlier in the passage of 1 Corinthians, how the Israelites were baptized into Moses. So these believers are baptized into Jesus in the same aspect in giving their life towards living for Jesus Christ. Forgiveness of sins indeed does come by the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit can only be received through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. With the receiving of baptism that brings us to be united with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, with the bringing about forgiveness of sins, we are also to walk in the likeness of how Jesus Christ himself walked. The final aspect of what baptism means for the believer is that they are now to walk with the life that is pleasing to the Father, which can only be done through Jesus Christ, who he rests on alone for salvation. This does not mean that we won't sin or that we must have a certain degree of holy living. That is not what I'm suggesting. But I do say that because there are people who say, if you believe, and obviously, you know, you are baptized, to what degree, if you're saved by faith alone, and obviously we have works that accompany that faith, they ask, how much works must a person have? Or what degree of holy living must they possess in order to have saving faith? But that kind of misses the aspect of the whole point of how we are saved. The aspect of what a person does have saving faith, there's not a certain degree of holy living that they have. It's the fact that they have any sort of degree of holy living. As a pastor, R.C. Sproul once said in his sermons, he would ask his question, do you love the Lord as you're commanded? People will say, no. Do you love him as you should? No. Do you even love him at all? They say, yes. You say, you see right there, that's how you would be able to see that your faith is genuine because you do have an aspect of faith of being able to seek to be able to love the Lord whom has died on the cross for your sins, to be able to show your thankfulness and gratitude for him. So in that aspect, this does not mean we won't sin or that we must have a certain degree of holy living. That is not what I'm suggesting yet. Don't get me wrong. We should strive to seek after righteousness indeed through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. What I'm saying is to look, for example, to the life of Abraham, who at the beginning of his journey with Jesus Christ had made plenty of mistakes, such as denying who Sarah was to him in his fullness. When Abraham and Sarah would go to meet up with the Philippian king, and he told Sarah, hey, 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 you, I love you. You're great. You, you're my, my wife. But I just need you to do me a favor. Just, just don't tell him. I am your wife. Just say I'm your sister. Which for some of us may be like, well, what's the big deal with that? I mean, it's, I mean, that was the truth. But the issue is the fact that if you take pride in, in this case for Sarah, if you have a spouse, you should take pride in your spouse being, well, your spouse. That's why you're married to them. But obviously, if you're not proud of being married to your spouse, then that shows that 
obviously you're not treating your spouse, in this case, husbands towards their wives, as Jesus is towards the church. Jesus Christ himself is very proud of his bride, the church, knowing the fact that she has faults and alls. He still loves her and is proud to be able to be married to her in the final day when his bride will be spotless and blameless without any spot, wrinkle, or blemish, right? So as we see here, denying the fullness, or I even have another example. He was sleeping with Hagar to help bring about God's promise on having a child, right? We have the example of Abraham, how he was given that through you, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham said, hey, amen, praise the Lord. It's going to be great. But as we all do, when we have the promises of the Lord, we all start off with such strength and zeal. But as time starts ticking, we start wondering, did he forget about us? Is he going to come through or am I not going to make it? And this is what happened with Abraham and Sarah over time. That as time went on and they started to get a little older, they said, I, I don't know. I think the Lord might need some help. So Sarah would tell Abraham, well, how about you sleep with Hagar? And maybe that's the very help God needs to bring about his promises for us, right? And of course, that brought a lot more struggles than a lot more blessings in doing something like that, right? Or even how Abraham denied again who Sarah was to him in its entirety. So in this aspect, we have the first instance where Abraham went with Sarah to meet with the Philippian king when there was famine in the land. Later time, he would actually now go when there's another famine in the land to actually go to the Egyptian pharaoh. But yet he tells Sarah yet again, say to them that you're just my sister and don't tell me you're my wife. Yet again, if he did it again, that would actually show that Abraham actually did not look at the very severity and mistakes, because as they say, those that who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And as we see this very true in Abraham's life. Yet, eventually look over time. When Abraham finally received the begotten son, whom he dearly loved, that is Isaac, he was then told by God to sacrifice him on a mountain. And without waver or worry, he obeyed God right away. Now, remember, just like I said, just put in perspective, Abraham, who has been given this promise and dearly wanted his own son, waited long, long time, doubted, struggled, went through the struggles as we talked about. And then he finally received the very thing he loved. And then given a little bit of time later, God then tells him, all right, now go sacrifice him. Now, of course, me being a brand new parent, you know, and having the now know what it means to have actually love for your own child. It actually is something that no, I guess, good, godly parents would just say, oh, okay, sure, whatever. I mean, they do annoy me most of the time anyway, so actually they'd be doing me a favor, obviously. It would be very grieving to their hearts. And so much so for Abraham, for he has finally received not just another son, but the son from him and Sarah, whom he actually spent a lot of time so much so that he was willing to have Hagar and Ishmael be kicked out and to be actually left to, you know, go on to their own journeys. While he said bye to Ishmael, he had kept near and dear to holding on to Isaac. For he is the one whom, as Hebrew says, was his begotten son. In the aspect that Isaac had a special love and bondage towards Abraham, as the father has a special love and affection towards Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus called God's begotten son, his only begotten son. 
So it is with Abraham and Isaac, right? As we see here, what amazing growth of faith Abraham had. It is this very kind of faith that all children will have. Even though they may stumble and fall into sin over time, their walk with Jesus Christ, they do become more like him until they have reached glory, where they will be as Jesus is, right? So in summary, we have this, these three aspects of baptism. The first aspect is that in our baptism, we share in every likeness of Jesus' life, mainly through the aspect of his death, which signifies us being dead to our sins, seeking to now live a righteousness towards Christ, being buried, representing the fact that through baptism, we are saved through Christ, as Noah was, air quote, buried through the ark, right? And we are risen out of the waters as Jesus was raised into a new life, where he was no longer in his same old body, but he was out now in his resurrected body. And I know for a lot of us, we are not in our resurrected bodies just yet, but indeed we have the Holy Spirit within us. To which Jesus would say, the flesh indeed is weak, but the spirit is willing. So the way that we get to live like Christ is not through our own human effort. That's the reason why we got in trouble in the first place. And we need a savior in the first place. It is through living in weakness so God's strength will be perfected in us. The next aspect of baptism is that we do receive the forgiveness of sins. Not through water baptism, but rather through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That causes us, as Jesus says in John 3, to be born again. And just like how a child is born out of his or her mother's womb and starts to cry for the first time, so do we also cry out, Abba, Father. And just like with the child, who doesn't know their left from their right, nor what gravity is, nor what electric socket does to a metal fork. They make plenty of mistakes and learn through life and through the upbringing of their godly parents, hopefully, to be able to know and grow in maturity. So it is with us that in our baptism, we too, when we're born of the Holy Spirit, grow as a child grows. And over time, generally speaking, of course, we do grow in maturity, no longer drinking the milk as babies do, but drinking the meat that all Christians should be eventually be able to eat. Indeed. Indeed. Right. And then on the final last aspect is that in being raised unto newness of life, in the life that we live with Christ, that everything that Jesus went through, we also will most likely be called to go through as well. Everybody gets it. Everybody loves the fact that Jesus is raised in glory and loved by the Father and given, you know, every kingdom and authority and dearly loved by him. But that is not all Jesus went through. He also went through many sufferings, trials, and even abandonments from even people who called themselves his own disciples. And even from those who were even genuinely dedicated and loving him. And even, of course, he was even betrayed by someone who was near and dear to him. Right? So for us, too, in walking with the Lord and walking like Christ, we, too, may experience betrayal, hardships, or even dying for our faith. For some of us, it may not be any of those things. Some of us, it may be just fighting our sin and just going day in and day out, 20 years on end with that same persistent sin. But eventually, God will bring us salvation in the aspect of having victory over the sin, whether it's in this life or will be once we reach glory. And in that is the conclusion of my message for you guys today. Any questions? I'm dying. <laughs> Thank you.
I try. I try. Any questions from anybody? Right. Um, like you gave the right answer, and then I think this kind of happens sometimes when we—I uh, don't want to say overcorrect, but sometimes when uh, people start to like leave it out there to say, "Well, give me, give me more about this," right? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if you were kind of like going along with it and say, "Well, the way I live my life," or whatever. It sounded a little confusing in that moment. I don't know if you want to elaborate on that. Yeah. No, of course. Um, like I said, I was probably a year or two in the faith. Um, you know, like I said, definitely understand that we are saved by faith. So if anybody asked me, how are you saved? I would have said by faith alone in Jesus Christ. What tripped me up is the fact that he said, what else? And so for me, I'm like, what do you mean? What else? So I felt like I was, I, I guess I missed some my entire life. And, you know, these people had their Bibles open. So it's like, well, I mean, if they're saying there's more to it, then. I guess they must know of a passage because, like I said, I, would, I didn't claim to know the entire Bible nor read it. So maybe they knew of a passage that I didn't know. So I was like, well, I mean, what else could I say that will still be saved by faith alone? I say, well, just live according to the Bible, not to be saved. I, I of course, knew that. So if you talk to me about that, oh, we're saved by faith and works? Well, I said, no, we're saved by faith alone. But you can't just say, I believe, and then just go on living however you want to live. Yes, that's what I was definitely trying to guard against. That's why I figured they were referencing, but, you know, obviously uh, they were definitely going into faith and works is what saves. And so obviously there was a lot of refining that I had to do and being challenged by these people who apparently had the scriptures to be able to talk about these things. Yes. Oh, that was uh, after LMC. So I went to LMC and then went to CSU East Bay, and that's when I first met them. Right, right. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I talked to you, like, hey, bro, dude, are we safe through baptism? You're like, nah, bro, come on, man. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, hey, bro, I don't know. They sounded pretty confident, man. Had me doubt, right? So, yeah, good. How do you drink meat? How do you drink meat? <laughs> that's a good question, right? Well, Technically, I mean, yeah, you put it through the blender. Um, I'll show you later. Yeah, you're dead. I'm sure you can definitely show you, although. Oh, did I say drink meat? Yeah, you did. Oh, I did? Oh, we'll see. Yeah, the nerves, right? Ah, really? I see you paying attention, man. You're definitely paying attention. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We drink the spiritual milk. Well, milk. We drink the spiritual milk as being new believers, but then we go on to eating hard foods like meat as mature believers, which shows that we have as that one aspect. It's not about eating meat, literally. It's about having the discernment on knowing what is actually good and what is actually evil. But good. Hey, keep me on my toes. Appreciate it. Christine? That church? Yes? What church is that? I don't remember the name of their church, but, I mean, they have them, like, that's what they're called. That's the title of, like, their group. It's called the Disciples of Christ. Yeah, they're they're pretty prominent. <laughs> their church, if you ever do go to um, their churches, it's a lot more so like college kids throughout the congregation, a lot of them. Besides, like, you know, maybe an older person with at least the one I went to. They don't really believe in Jesus Christ? They'll tell you they do. But they really don't? Yeah, they don't believe in the true aspect of what Jesus taught, the true gospel that Jesus and his apostles taught. Yeah, so they use the scriptures just like the devil did with Satan, right? If you're the son of God, go in and cast yourself down for the scriptures themselves say. He will save you. He will let, his, let you hurt your foot against a stone. And he says, scriptures also say, don't test the Lord your God, right? So just got to be discerning and be able to see what is actually true and good versus what will lead you astray. Ross? So this... Uh Baptist pushing the group down in yeah. CSU. What do they say to uh, Peter sharing the gospel with Cornelius? And yeah. it's like before he even finished sharing the gospel, the right. Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking in tongues. They had gifts yeah. uh, of the Holy Spirit. Were they not saved? What, what, what do they say to that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, they, haven't, they haven't been baptized yet. Yeah. Or they haven't been water right. baptized. Yeah. They have been spirit baptized. Right. But they have not been water baptized. Yeah. So when you bring up the example like Cornelius or any really any other example, and that's, that's why I brought up Acts 19 because the same stuff is dealt with there too. Once the laying on of hands was dealt, then they received the Holy Spirit. But using the instance of Cornelius, um, usually, like I said, I don't really talk to the leaders of their group besides the initial time. Once they saw that I wasn't going to believe, they're just like, all right, well, we'll dust the dirt off our feet. And, you know, hey, bro, hopefully you get to repent of your sins soon, man, because time's a ticking. Um, Most of my interactions were done through one of their new believers that was raised up where I was able to have a lot of my interactions with him. And so what he'll say, or what he was trained to say, is that when they bring up any passages, go to Acts 2, Acts 2 verse 8, or Acts 2, 38. I say, but Peter said, you must repent and be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit. Or other passages that baptism now saves. And show them that, well, what about this passage? So they don't even address that. They'll say, but what about this passage that clearly says baptism is necessary in order to receive the Holy Spirit or to be saved? Can it not be distinguished? Right. In a new life. 
mm-hmm. immersed in our identity with Christ, and we will uh, live um, a life as a you know, representative, but then we will have to carry our cross. Right. Um, so why, why can't they see that? Um, moving on to a, a you know, same discussion, but a different angle in, in uh-huh. First Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians ten, First mm-hmm. Corinthians one, verse ten, where Paul's talking to the Corinthians yep. about division amongst the church, and some follow Apollos and mm-hmm. some follow Paul, and I'm a Peter, and you know, it's like you guys, you know, you just, you just need to be of Christ. Yep. You know, stop picking your your. Well, it was in that discussion, and and he goes on to say. Um, what I mean is in, in uh, ver- chapter 1, verse 12. What I mean is that each one of you say, oh, Paul, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? Or were you baptized? I'm in the verse 13 now. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Mm-hmm. I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then there's apprentices. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone. And, you know, you can read yeah. in between the line there, or read in between the words, and nor do I care that I, whether yeah. I baptized. He is saying, I, you know, I am glad I didn't, didn't baptize. And if, bapti- if that water baptism gives you salvation, and mm-hmm. Paul is saying, I am glad I had nothing to do with your salvation, that's idiotic. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, I even brought up that passage to the guy I was doing a lot of these studies with on that. I said, well, hey, do you think Paul was a great evangelist? Do you think he did the Great Commission? He said, of course. And I brought up that passage and I said, he says, well, you know, for God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Paul actually shows emphasis on preaching the gospel and not on baptism. And of course, that's he actually had no response for that. He's just like, oh, well, good to know. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah, well, he would have a tendency to do that, but oftentimes when he would get stumped, he would say, oh, well, that's a good question. Let me go back to my people, and I'll ask them, and I'll come back to you on that. And it almost seems as if they've taken Christian themes and yeah. put them into the framework of Amway, multi-level yeah. marketing, yeah. Yeah. so that now they're making disciples that then have to go out and multi-level. Yeah. If you're not baptizing people into this whole group, you know, this is how we're going to build the kingdom of God. It's like being cute and trying to put human... Yeah ideas into the process of building the kingdom of God. Yeah. That's going to surely fail. You know? Yeah, definitely. That's, Oh no, definitely. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's. I mean, I thank God for it. You know, He's sovereign over everything, and that's actually what God used to actually really get me into apologetics at that point. You know, learning how to actually defend my faith. 
knowing that I'm not always going to have the right answers, but, you know, to know like, hey, this is how to, these are the steps and methods of how to be able to defend God and give him glory in the matter. Now, I'll get to you in one second, just to respond to Ross's other point. Um, and Ross, you brought up the fact that they, there's a distinction between the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit baptism and water baptism. Again, I would bring that up to them. But if you do talk to the leaders or even any of them, they will go into uh, Ephesians. I think that's where it is. And they'll quote to you, well, the Bible does say, though, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. So they'll say, see, Brendan, you're making distinctions. You're making two baptisms. There's no two baptisms. There's only one. And the one baptism that saves is water baptism. So anytime you bring up any other baptismal reference, even though it doesn't say it, they'll tell you it's implied water baptism. Because of that passage in Ephesians that says there's only one baptism that exists. I, I would agree. I, yeah. If, if somebody said there's only one baptism that's involved in the time of your salvation, I would agree with that. But it would nah. not have been water baptism. It would be spirit baptism. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, if you can't distinguish between the two, uh-huh. nah, it'll, Reading the Bible will drive you nuts yeah. about on this topic. Definitely. You, you, can't, you can take either side and be equally consternated uh, because you're both you're dealing with the you're you're dealing with the wrong set of facts. Yeah, definitely. So good stuff. And I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that you know that's the crux of your message is to distinguish one from the other and yeah. have their places. Of course, yeah, of course, of course. Definitely related, right? That's why the catechism says that speaking of water baptism is a sign of that internal baptism. Yeah, symbolic. It's a sign. Yeah, definitely. Were we, uh, I'm just curious. Uh, get to you. You were like, 84, 84. I just wanted to comment. Yeah. You've been where you've been. Oh. Back in college. Back even in high school up there, I came from a charismatic background. So mm. you talk about, yeah. you know, slain in the spirit. Yep, so, yep. Yeah, yeah definitely. experienced all that and understood, realized that was not, a, you know, more emotion than it was mm-hmm. truth. Yeah. So I've been where you've been. And yes, I've heard about the disciples of Christ. And yeah. I remember the church of Christ. And I remember you know, all those things that existed yeah. in the 80s. Okay, so it's been it yeah. way yeah. back then of all how you can take a scripture and mm-hmm. twist it to Amway. Two people twice <laughs> tried to recruit me to Amway. Yeah. And so it's... Um, hey, I received through Amway. <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to read. Yeah. I've been there. Definitely. So like, but I praise God. God did not give up on me. And yeah. You're gonna learn Amen. This, and you're going to learn, you know, what the scripture really is. And I when yeah. I finally learned it, and I was like, okay. Ditto for me, too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Since we're in a kind of a series of questions dealing with the ordinary means of grace, would we then differentiate spirit baptism as non ordinary means of grace, or would we just kind of lump that in with water baptism as? Um, now, when you say means of grace, as in how God brings a person to salvation? Oh, okay. 
prayer. These are all things that God uses to supply us with grace and to bless us, and He often does it through the Lord's Day yeah. services. And things. So, if baptism is an ordinary means of grace, it's not something we do regularly, mm-hmm. but it is an important part of every Christian's life who's a right. scripture. Then, when we consider the baptism of the Spirit an ordinary means of grace, or I've never really heard anybody talk about it that way, or Yeah. That's what I mean. I be a ditto because you know the means of grace is how God brings about sanctification in us. I mean, you know, in these aspects, He has given us the Lord's table, which we're supposed to reflect on. You know, our own, you know, fallenness and the fact that Christ is the one who has brought us to the table to be able to fellowship with Him, and even water baptism, which is definitely a means of grace as well. Um, like I said, if you know about baptism, as I was learning, I was like, wow. I didn't know about all this when I got water baptized, but if I didn't know of all this going into it, it's it's kind of, I guess, similar way to matter when you give an engagement ring to, you know, in my case, Savannah. That is not just, oh, here's a nice ring for you to wear. You know, it looks nice on you. It's like, no, it's a lot of means and stuff in that meaning of that engagement ring. So, so to the point I like John saying, the church disposes the means of grace, but we can't dispose the spirit from one to Yeah. Yeah. So water baptism, that's yeah. not, or that's spirit baptism, not water baptism. Yep. So I think it just creates a little confusion there. Well, you, you have to read it like this. So what is baptism? Baptism is an ordinance in the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ to be a sign to the party baptized in fellowship with him, his death, burial, resurrection, to be a sign of his being engrafted in To be a sign of his, yeah. So if you throw the to be a sign in front of each of those different clauses, it makes sense. Well, baptism yeah. is a testament. You were testifying before yeah. everybody that I am now dead to, the, to sin in my life. Yeah, that was the last part. Yeah, yeah. that's a part. Yeah, yeah, that's that's part. Yeah, that I, was, I was stumped on that too. I didn't catch that part. Thanks for clarifying that. But I was glad Brendan didn't get. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, yeah. I missed it. Nick missed it. Yeah, but definitely. Brendan, you know, the end of it, can I just talk about your uh, types? I was kind of worried when you started bringing up those types. I was worried. Yeah. You pointed those out, but um, you know, in your beginning part, right? Yeah. Um, but one thing I would just caution you, having gone to war with so many of my 
Presbyterian brothers that I love. Um, John's baptism is definitely not believer's baptism unless you're a Paleo-Baptist. Uh, a yeah. lot of them and their commentaries and stuff they write. And one of my dear friends who's a militant Presbyterian will call John the Baptist, he'll call him John Presbyterian. Right? So that's his favorite thing to do. But yeah. if you look at those texts, like when he says, you know, oh, brood of vipers who weren't yeah. the wrath come, therefore bring fruits that are worthy of repentance, right? So he rebuked the Pharisees who were coming to baptism. But a Presbyterian will love that text because they say, see, he's telling these people to repent, but he's baptizing them first. And, and even Jesus, I think, it, it, it pointed out, uh, when he me question him, yeah. baptism from, of John, yeah. was it from heaven or was it from men? Right? So I don't know of any Baptists unless all of us that, that take that as a uh, uh, church ordinance type, you know, believe in baptism. Well, wasn't John's baptism during that time for the is for the people of Israel to repent? You know, he was telling them to repent. I baptize you. It was yeah. he was preparing them for Jesus for Jesus' yeah. ministry to come when Jesus came to be baptized. He had to be baptized in order to be in order for him to go. Now it is time for me to minister and, and baptize us, you know others. Yeah, yeah. I'm just pointing out that yeah. Presbyterians like pedos will a lot of pedos will use that to say. Baptism precedes faith, so you baptize that wrong. Yeah, they're mm. going to say that baptism is the New Testament equivalent to circumcision. Which, yeah. They would have criticized you for leaving that out, right? Yeah. Circumcision was a precursor to baptism. It's not an equivalent. Yeah. It's not. They say that too, right? Because they do baptize believers also. They do baptize the grown adults. They don't only baptize infants. So that would be inconsistent them to say that even though. Well, they would turn around and say, well, in the Old Testament, God circumcised believers as well. So we're doing both, unlike you guys. <laughs> so they'll try to, I don't know, it's like, you know, they always have to <laughs> something to say. We know it's out of context. But just be cautious yeah. with that, brother. When you use that, that's definitely something that would be arguing against us. Yeah. I, I know with like a lot of my studies in this uh, catechism question on that, I was tempted many times to be like oh okay let me go show this is why we don't baptize infants you know or this is why you know we don't have this other baptism because i know those are in the later catechism questions so i wasn't trying to you know take someone else's thunder i'll let them you know speak on it so i know this passage they could definitely bring up on those aspects um the aspect of uh you know i was thinking of talking specifically of baptism being equivalent equivalented to circumcision but um i just figured that's not necessarily the focus of the catechism question, but I was wanting to, but I decided to just. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was just trying to be mindful of the next person. So good. Yeah, thanks. Anything else? Cool. Really good job, Thank yeah. you. Appreciate it.